may be seated. As we come to this week, the week of our Lord and the day of his death, we indeed do so with reverence and soberness. It's a solemn moment in the life of the church as we contemplate the difficulty and the misery of the crucifixion. As we think and even sing about his nail-pierced hands, crown of thorns upon his head, his sword-pierced side, the drops of blood from his brow. We ask, what could have led to this? How could have humanity stooped so low to do such a despicable thing as this, to crucify a man like this? In one sense, it is incomprehensible. And yet, on the other hand, it fits the narrative and the norm of this world. The norm that we so often see, sadly. A world in when there, where there is weekly shootings and acts of terror and atrocity of many kinds, where bullets are shot at innocent victims and bombs are detonated upon those that pass by. The darkness of this world can indeed be overwhelming and grim. And oftentimes we wonder, is there any hope? Is there any solution? And yet that is exactly what we see as we open the Bible and turn to this passage and we read of these days of darkness. The days when literally the sun became blocked out. The day became as night. The day of the crucifixion of Christ. And what we see is not the best of humanity, but rather the worst. In fact, we see the depravity of all mankind. In Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross, a psalm that foreshadowed the death that Christ would endure, we read these words. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan. They open wide their mouth at me like a ravenous, roaring lion. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet, pierced on the horns of the wild oxen. Do you hear those words? Bulls. Oxen, dogs, lions, evildoers. That is the description of those that would put the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of Man, upon the cross. And as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, that is exactly what we see, that is exactly what we read. We hear of the chief priests and the elders the conspirators, the connivers, the schemers. We read these words that they took counsel together against Jesus, and their counsel was to put him to death. 
This was just not their counsel on that day. It was their counsel from the very beginning. Why? Because Jesus did not respect their authority, their greatness, their glory. He was gaining followers and support. And they, being the so-called spiritual leaders of the day, could not have a group that was not loyal to them. Those that would threaten their control, those that would threaten their power. Their religion was at stake, and they could not allow that. But their religion was not the religion of Micah 6, 8, which says that we're to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. Their religion was not the religion of Micah or of any of the prophets, in fact, they had strayed from the biblical practices and had created their own. And so instead, their plan, their religious, was to put Jesus to death. No, there was no justice, just injustice. No love, just hatred. No kindness, just murderous intentions. No humility, just pure pride. Caiaphas, the high priest, said it would be better that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Supposedly, this would be good. Good of the whole. That one man die for the rest. Was it good or was it politically expedient? Yes, the Psalms are correct. The psalmist is correct. When he said, bulls have surrounded me. But we go on. We read of Judas, the betrayer. The man who was a companion, even a friend. The one who was with Jesus for three years. Who saw the miracles. Who heard the sermons. Who enjoyed the private instruction. Who professed himself to be a believer. Who had worked and even preached in Christ's name. Yes, that Judas, the one who in the end was supposed to be a friend, but who instead betrayed him. Perhaps Judas was delusion, hoping Jesus to be something and finding him to be different. Perhaps he wanted something out of Jesus that Jesus was not giving him. We read that all along Judas was a thief, stealing money out of the money bag for his own personal use. The love of money, which is the root of all evil. No doubt, justifying it all along the way. And in the end, he stands, not with the disciples, not with Jesus, but with the armed guards and the chief priests. Jesus says, if you're not for me, you are against me. Judas was against him. Even taking money, that love of money for Jesus' arrest. And even betraying him with a kiss. Yes, yes, dogs, dogs have encircled me. But we go on. We read of Pilate, the appeaser. The Roman official, the governor of the day, placed as a judge and arbiter, given the power to enforce justice and equity and peace, to defend those that were under his care. And yet when 
Jesus is brought before him, do we see any of that taking place? No. Rather, we see a man that is annoyed that his peace was disturbed. He asks no questions. He makes no investigation. He has no inquiry to discover the truth. And yet he asks that question, what is truth? But he was not concerned with that in the least. What was he concerned with? He was concerned with appeasing the people. What would give the best results? What would make his life the easiest? Pilate was the ultimate pragmatist. Even though he was warned by his wife not to have anything to do with that man, to not shed his innocent blood, yet even that warning was not enough because teasing the crowds was more important to Pilate. As they shout, crucify, crucify, and Pilate sees the situation getting out of hand. Heaven forbid that word get back to Rome, that there would be riots upon his watch. What would that say about his leadership? How would he ever be promoted in the Roman government if he did not take care of this disruption and take care of it quickly? And so he tries to even buy off the crowd. He tries to barter with them. He asks them, who would you rather have, Christ or Barabbas? Surely they will not pick Barabbas. And yet, who do they pick? They pick Barabbas. Because no alternative will do. This crowd is hell-bent on crucifying the Christ. And Pilate, as a typical politician, gives the crowd what the crowd wants. Knowing that this goes contrary to what he is called to do. Yet pretending all along that he has nothing to do with it. Trying to wash his hands of this innocent man's blood while giving them counsel to do exactly what they wanted to do. Pierced by the horns of the wild ox. We have Barabbas, the murderer, the one who led an insurrection, who was a robber and a murderer, a man imprisoned a man that was worthy of being in prison, most likely worthy of being put to death for his crimes, and yet, at this moment, he had not. Why is that? Was he being afforded a proper judicial hearing? The very thing that Jesus was being denied. Were they concerned for justice, for Barabbas? Was the guilty receiving that which the innocent was denied? seems so. And instead, the innocent man is crucified while a robber and a murderer walks free. Yes, the company of evildoers surround me. And then we have the crowd. The crowd of malcontents, those that were there to stir up trouble, to cause harm. Those that were willing to have a murderer, to have a robber walking the streets rather than one that never harmed or hurt anyone, one that healed and one that had loved, one that had served them. How is it now that they could feel that this man was a threat 
so much so that they would cry out for his crucifixion. Not for him just to be imprisoned, not for him to be exiled, but for him to be killed, for him to be crucified. And was it not this same crowd that days before were greeting him as he rode into Jerusalem with palms and throwing their cloaks before him, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet now they see him as the devil himself. So fickle were these people, so obstinate and hard-hearted that even in their defiance they would say, may his blood be upon us and upon our children, glorying in their disobedience. They open wide their mouths at me like ravenous, roaring lions. Yes, bulls, dogs, oxen, lions, evildoers. The psalmist rightly labels them. And yet, before we cast the first stone, before we think, how could they? How could they do such a thing like this? We must understand our own sin. We must number ourselves among that lot. That they were not the only animals, so to speak, to do wrong. For is it only the chief priests and the elders of the day that are concerned with power and rule and control? Is it only Judas that is allured by the temptations of the flesh? Is he the only one that is appealed by the things of this world? Is it only Pilate that is more concerned with pleading with others and pleasing them than doing what is right? Is it only Barabbas that is filled with rage and even hatred towards others? Is it only the crowd that is capricious and impulsive, that is led by their moods and their emotions? Surely not. For when we look to our own hearts and we look to our own lives, we see these exact sins, these sins that we are so repulsed by, these sins that we say we could never do, sins that we would say we would never be a part, and yet we see them in our own lives. Yes, those sins. Those sins that lead us to be almost beast-like. Psalmist says in Psalm 8, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen and beasts of the field. And yes, that is true, but is it not in our sinfulness that oftentimes we seem more like the animals that we are to be above than to be like the heavenly hosts that we are supposedly supposed to be? Isn't it true when we look at humanity that we see us being more beast-like than angelic? And that is why we have to say that it's not the chief priest. 
It's not Judas. It's not Pilate. It's not Barabbas. It's not the crowds. It was the ultimate cause of the crucifixion. But it was us. It was us. We look and we see these beasts surrounding the cross and we must count ourselves among them. We too must stand guilty. We too must stand condemned. And we cannot say falsely like Pilate tried to say that I had nothing to do with this man's blood. No, it is our sins. It is our transgressions that has everything to do with this man's blood. It is you and me that has crucified the Christ. Behold, you are the man. Behold, you are the woman. The death of the Messiah is upon us. And yet, the same place that we find such condemnation is the very same place where we find love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. The same shed blood that makes us guilty before a holy God is that same blood that sets us free. For it is at the cross that we stand condemned and it is at the cross we are justified and reconciled to this holy God. Amazing love. How can it be that you, O God, should die for me? For it is that blood, that blood, that's received by faith and confession that saves our very soul. Listen to Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. Do you hear? It was our transgressions. It was our iniquities. And yet, it is the place where we find our healing. The place that we find our peace. How is it that the Father could allow the agony, such agony as this, to be upon His only begotten Son? He's willing to do it for you and for me. The punishment that is deserved for our sins. The atonement that makes us whole and complete. And so this night as you contemplate the cross, as you think about the death of our Lord, we say both in condemnation as well as in reconciliation, yes, yes, His blood is upon us and upon our children. Because we are condemned and yet made new creatures at the cross of Christ. In a moment, we're going to sing these words from stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Tell me, you who hear him groaning, 
Was there ever grief like this? Friend, though fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress, many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here, its guilty estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wound. Sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope hath built. Amen. Well, as we approach the table then, let us take a time to indeed think upon the death of our Lord. Think upon our condemnation. And yet, Think upon our reconciliation and being made right with God. We will have a time of private confession and then we will use the corporate confession printed in our program tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Amen. Our corporate confession of sin places together, again, that condemnation and reconciliation, that darkness and light that we see in the forgiveness of sins that we have in and through the death of our Lord. As we respond with that which is in the bowl. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Men love darkness rather than the light. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. For we know the law is spiritual, 
but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Indeed, those words would be words that would merely condemn us if we only had the law, if we only had the holiness of God. Who is it that would be able to stand? Not one of us. But because we come in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of what He has done, we can face those accusations because we know that that accusation fell upon our Lord instead upon us. That condemnation he took instead of us taking it upon ourselves. And we receive all of his righteousness, all of his perfection. We stand perfect and complete, pure and holy because of Christ. Hear now these words of pardon. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins.